0: Welcome back to our New Testament survey. Each week we're looking at a different book of the Bible in the New Testament this time. And this evening we are looking at the Gospel according to Luke. The Gospel according to Luke. This is the third of the four Gospels that we've looked at. It is the last of what is known as the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all share a similar style and many of the similar same episodes in the life of Christ. Uh, John, which we'll look at next week, is a little different in its presentation and approach. Uh, But we might ask ourselves, why do we need a third gospel uh, that's basically taking the same approach that Matthew and Mark did? But uh, we'll see this evening that even though we're still dealing with many of the same Uh, episodes in the life of Christ that Luke's intentions and purposes are a little different, his themes are a little different, and his audience is different as well. So as we approach this gospel, it bears the name of Luke, and so we ask, who was this man Luke? He was not one of the twelve apostles, Uh, similar to Mark, who also was not an apostle. Mark, we saw, was closely associated with the apostle Peter, and also with Paul during some of his missionary trips. Luke, we find, was an associate of Paul on his missionary journeys. Uh, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, and so it's like a two-volume set. The Gospel of Luke is uh, the life of Christ and the Book of Acts is the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, And so we can see as we look through the Gospel or the the Book of Acts that there are many passages there where uh, he will narrate the action and say Paul or they went and did such and such, and then there are other passages where he will say we did such and such, and so obviously in those passages Luke was there with Paul and was narrating that uh, as an eyewitness. But here in the gospel uh, he was not an eyewitness to uh, the life of Christ. Luke himself was not even a Jew. He was a Gentile, so he's the first of our uh, gospel authors uh, to bear that distinction. Mark was not an eyewitness to most of it himself, but he was a Jew. Luke is not. He's a Greek. Uh, He's a physician, likely Paul's personal physician. Um, But the authorship of the gospel that bears his name is attested to by the early church. There's no uh, dispute or any other theories about who wrote it. Uh, Everyone takes it that it is uh, penned by this man Luke. As far as when it was written, uh, we don't know particularly, but we know that it was written sometime before 70 AD, uh, likely in the early to mid 60s. So uh, just to put that in perspective, as we're talking about these gospels, um, you know, the life of Christ was uh, right around the crucifixion and resurrection, right around year 30 to 33 AD. Uh, so the gospel of Luke being written 25 to 30 years later, Uh, is pretty close to the events that happened, and so we'll see that Luke, uh, even though he was not an eyewitness himself, claims that he had a thorough knowledge of these events. And So if we look at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke, starting in chapter 1, we'll read verses 1 through 4, where Luke is going to state uh, his procedure and his purposes for writing this Gospel account. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed." So we can see that Luke, first of all, is writing to a particular individual, Theophilus, who is a a Greek man, it's a Greek name. Uh, This is possibly Luke's benefactor, uh, maybe someone who is uh, supplying him with the financial means to accompany Paul on his missionary journeys. And so Luke is um, returning that by writing for him an orderly account of the life of Christ. Luke states right here at the beginning that there are others who have written accounts, but that he has a perfect understanding of all these things. He has interviewed eyewitnesses to this event, to these events, and his intention is to write an orderly account. So Luke, being a physician, a doctor, is very precise in his writing and in his presentation of things. And so he wants to put these things in order, uh, get them set chronologically. And his purpose, he says, is that Theophilus might know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. So Theophilus is a Gentile who has been instructed in the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus Christ. And Luke wants him to know the certainty of those things that he has been taught. And so he sets out to give us an orderly account of the life of Christ in order to give us that certainty. If we look at uh, outlining the gospel of Luke, uh, I would do so in four sections. Uh, Chapter 1 through chapter 4, verse 13 would be his introduction Uh, to John the Baptist and to Jesus. Then chapter 4 verse 14 through chapter 9 verse 50 would be the ministry of Christ in Galilee. And then chapter 9 verse 51 through 19 verse 27 would be uh, the road to Jerusalem. And that's a large section of the gospel uh, from the end of chapter 9 midway through chapter 19 A large section of Luke's gospel is taken up with Christ journeying from Galilee to Jerusalem. And then the final section would be chapter 19 verse 28 through the end in chapter 24 uh, which would be Christ in Judea and Jerusalem. Luke's major theme as we look at this gospel and it makes sense as we consider who he is and who he has said that he is writing to His major theme throughout this gospel is the inclusion of all people in the kingdom. His theme is the inclusion of Gentiles, of the outcasts and the downtrodden, over and over again throughout his gospel. We see Luke calling attention to uh, things from the Old Testament and things from the life of Christ, uh, where he is including outcasts on the fringes of society and including Gentiles, in this new kingdom people that Christ is building in his church. So, obviously, Luke being a doctor, it makes sense that he would begin with a uh, focus on the birth of Christ. We saw Mark didn't even do that, uh, but Luke does. And Luke actually backs up and and begins with uh, a focus on the birth of John the Baptist. Now, what's interesting about Luke's presentation of the the nativity of the birth of Christ is that uh, unlike Matthew, Matthew focused largely on Joseph in his presentation. Luke focuses more on the women, on Elizabeth and on Mary, on their response uh, to the pregnancies and that sort of thing. So uh, he begins with the conception of John the Baptist. uh, And again, this is not Uh, related to us in either uh, any of the other Gospels. So this is unique to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, He focuses from chapter 1, verse 5, through verse 25. Uh, He focuses on the conception of John the Baptist, who is to be this voice of one crying in the wilderness uh, to prepare the way for the Lord. And then in verse 26, uh, we see the angel uh, announcing to Mary that she will... Uh, give birth. And so in verse 26, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And so then Luke records for us Mary's response to this. But notice what Luke did. He, He mentioned Galilee, Nazareth, and Joseph being of the house of David, and Mary being a virgin. Those are all things that are prophesied in the Old Testament. And so Luke is showing us that these things are fulfilled uh, in the birth of Christ. And so the angel announces to Mary that she will have a son. uh, And the angel in verse 30 tells her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Well, as we've been working our way through Genesis, even on Sunday mornings, we've seen the promise of the Messiah Who would come? We've seen as we worked through our Old Testament survey uh, the promise one who would come in the line of David, who would sit on the throne forever. Luke is telling us those things are finding their fulfillment here in Christ. He is the son of Joseph, who is of the house of David, Uh, he is the son of God, the son of the highest. Uh, His name is Jesus, which means Savior or God saves. Uh, He's going to sit on the throne with no end to his kingdom. And so Luke is making that point that Christ is fulfilling all of those prophecies in the Old Testament. What I found particularly interesting here in Luke's account of this too is given that Luke is a doctor and very precise and concerned with getting things in order, you'd think he's got a very logical mind, Uh, He thinks linearly. He wants to get things in chronological order. And yet, at the same time, Luke is the only one that records for us these songs. He gives us Mary's song uh, as she magnifies the Lord in response to this announcement. He gives us Zechariah's prophecy, which also takes the form of a song. And so I thought that was interesting that Luke, this doctor with a logical mind, also uh, cares about the beauty and the poetry uh, of Scripture to have these things recorded for us. Interestingly, he even records um, the angels' song in chapter 2, verse 14, uh, where the angels sing, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. But then, as we work through chapter 2, we begin to see Luke's focus on the inclusion of the Gentiles because in chap- chapter 2, verse 29, um, they have brought the young Christ to the temple um, for his dedication. And there is an, an older man there who is waiting, it says, for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting uh, to see God's Christ, his anointed one, the Messiah. The Lord had promised him he would live to see that day. They bring Jesus into the temple uh, to dedicate him. And so this man, Simeon, it says in verse 28, took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of of your people, Israel. So that there is a, an allusion back to a prophecy in the book of Isaiah, chapter 49, where Isaiah had written concerning the servant of the Lord and said, Indeed, he says, Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And so Luke is drawing that in from Isaiah, applying that to Christ uh, here in the words of Simeon and showing us that the Gentiles are now to be included uh, in the, the household of faith. In chapter 2 verse 41 we see that um, as they're there in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover, Again, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover, and so they bring Christ uh, when he is a boy. Uh, Again, this is an episode in the life of Christ that is only found in the Gospel of Luke, and Luke has explicitly made the point back in chapter 2 that Christ was Mary's firstborn son. He said that in verse 7, uh, she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. He said it again uh, in verse 23, uh, when they brought Christ to the temple to be circumcised, uh, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb should be called holy to the Lord. Uh, so he's making the point, Jesus is the firstborn, and then he makes the point that They are going every year to celebrate the Passover. Of course, what the Passover was, uh, the celebration of God passing over the the homes of the Israelites in Egypt, uh, but striking the firstborn of the Egyptians. And so uh, Luke is pointing the way there towards Christ as the firstborn, the Son of God who would take our place as the Passover Lamb. Then as uh, we move into chapter 3 and he begins to focus on John's ministry, John the Baptist, Uh, we see that he says in verse 3 through 6, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So again, when he says all flesh, Luke is making the point that the Gentiles will see salvation in Christ. And that is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 40 where the prophet is describing God leading his people out of their Babylonian captivity through the desert to the promised land. And so Luke is making the point that Christ is uh, leading his people free from slavery uh, and to our eternal home. Then in uh, chapter 3, verse 23, Luke presents to us his genealogy. Now, he places it in a different place than Matthew does. Matthew started with the genealogy. Luke waits till after the birth, after the baptism of Christ even, to present to us his genealogy. And what's interesting here is he has made the point that all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Uh, Jesus gets baptized and then he gives us uh, the genealogy of Christ. And he traces it, unlike um, Matthew, he traces it all the way back to Adam. Uh, And in verse 38 he concludes it by saying the son of Adam, the son of God. And so Luke is making the point Jesus is the second Adam. He is, there's a new thing happening, a new creation, a a new mankind and Jesus is the savior of them all. Uh, So once again, he's pointing the way towards the inclusion of the Gentiles in the plan of salvation. He moves from that to the temptation in the wilderness, 40 days of temptation um, and Jesus here in the wilderness is for 40 days is recapitulating the wilderness wandering of Israel for 40 years. And Jesus is tempted by Satan three specific times, and three specific times he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. Now he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, and he quotes verse 13. Um, No, that's not right. Well, I've written down one wrong verse. I'm not sure which one I'm at here. Um, Let me get down to my references at the bottom. We'll check our footnotes. Chapter 4, verse 4. Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. How I wrote that down wrong, I don't know. Yeah. So when Satan tempts him uh, to turn the stones into bread, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, where he says um, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. But the context here in Deuteronomy is that Israel's wandering in the wilderness. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And so even with that quotation, Christ is... Drawing this connection between his temptation in the wilderness and Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. This is a a central episode that is included in all the Gospels. And so it's important for us to recognize that um, as Christ is tempted by Satan, quotes the word of God back to him three times and succeeds where Adam had failed. um, That Jesus conquers Satan at this point. And so, from this point forward, Christ acts like the King who has conquered already. It's already been accomplished. He has succeeded where Adam failed. So at this point, uh Luke now moves to Jesus' ministry in Galilee, and he comes out of the temptation in chapter four uh, in verses eighteen and nineteen Christ has um gone into the tab into the synagogue in Nazareth uh, and they hand him a scroll from the book of Isaiah, and he reads from it, and he reads this passage in verse 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now this is from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, uh, where Isaiah is talking about Uh, the year of Jubilee that they would celebrate once every 50 years in Jerusalem and in Israel. And Isaiah there is taking that year of Jubilee from the Old Testament law and applying it to the end times. Uh, And so Christ is then saying uh, in verse 21, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And so he is claiming to be the promised one from the book of Isaiah who is leading the captives free and celebrating this year of Jubilee uh, and as the end-time Messiah. And so immediately, uh, Luke moves on to making the point, once again, that the Gentiles are included in this, uh, because uh, as Jesus goes back and forth with these people, in verse 24, then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own country, but I tell you Truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But none of them, to none of them, was Elijah sent except Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. And so Jesus is making the point that those who are outside uh, what the Jews considered to be acceptable Would be included in this new kingdom that he is establishing. Uh, Then Luke moves on with his story, and in uh, chapter, we're going to skip over some things, but in chapter uh, 5, he gives us the story of uh, Jesus beginning to teach and his first interaction with. Uh, some of the disciples, particularly Simon Peter, uh, and he gets in a boat with them to go out on the the lake to preach because the crowd is so great. And when they get out in the boat, uh, Jesus in verse 4 says, "'Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch.' But Simon answered and said to him, "'Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net.' And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking.' And then at the end of this episode, in verse 8, Simon Peter saw it. He fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And so Simon recognized, even at that point, that Christ was not just another man. He was not just another great teacher, but this is, he is holy. He is the holy one of God. And, and Luke's point in placing this here, not only in putting things in order, but uh, he's just presented to us the genealogy that Jesus is the second Adam. Uh, he has triumphed where Adam failed in his temptation in the wilderness uh, as he faced Satan. And here he's showing us that Jesus has taken dominion uh, in a way that Adam never did. Jesus took dominion over the fish of the sea even. Then in chapter 6, we'll um, Verses 1 through 5, Jesus has this interaction with uh, some of the Jewish leaders uh, where he is, and his disciples are going through the grain fields and his disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said to them, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? But Jesus answering them said, Have you not even read this, what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? how he went into the house of God, took and ate the showbread, and also gave some to those with him, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. And he said to them, The Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. And so Jesus' point here is that David, as the king, ate the holy bread that was supposed to be just for the priests, and Jesus himself, as the Messiah, is the king. Uh, And so he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is able to partake uh, of, of holy things and the Sabbath is his. He gets to define what the Sabbath is, and he actually restores the true purpose of the Sabbath, which is rest and nourishment for our bodies, saying this is not unlawful uh, for them to feed themselves on the Sabbath day. Then in chapter 6, Jesus goes up on a mountain in verse 12 to pray and continue in prayer all night. So again, we see this uh, mountain, Uh, meeting with God on the mountain, which we've seen in other uh, gospel narratives already. Uh, But then he calls 12 disciples to him, constituting a new nation of Israel, as it were, uh, and then uh, begins to go about his ministry. And, of course, we have the teaching episodes here of the Beatitudes. But as we move into chapter 7, Jesus Jesus is going to go heal uh, a, a centurion, a Roman soldier comes to him whose servant is sick uh, and he wants Jesus to heal him and so Jesus interacts with this man and the man says that you don't even have to come to the house, just say the word and he'll be healed. And Jesus responds to this in verse 9, when Jesus heard these things he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you I have not found such great faith not even in Israel. And so, again, Luke is making the point that uh, here's a Gentile who is expressing faith in Christ that was greater than that of many of the Jews themselves. Then in chapter 8, verse 24, we see, um, again, the episode of Christ on the stormy water with his disciples, uh, and he's asleep in the boat, and they came to him and awoke him, saying, "'Master, Master, we are perishing.'" Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And so again, we see that Christ is the Lord who has authority over the storm, which we've seen repeatedly in in Matthew and Mark, and now again here in Luke, that this is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, particularly in the book of Psalms, who say that the Lord is the one who can calm the raging sea. Then as we move down in chapter 8 to verse 26... Um, we see this demon-possessed man. We saw this uh, previously in one of the other Gospels, Uh, but here Jesus is uh, demonstrating his authority over the spiritual realm as well as the physical realm. And then following that, um, Jesus heals this woman who has an issue of blood and she touches the hem of his garment and she is healed. And so uh, Jesus is demonstrating in this respect that he is not only uh, the Messiah, he's not only the King in the line of David, but he is God himself. Because in the Old Testament economy, uh, Leviticus 15 tells us that for an issue like this, this woman would go to the temple. That's where something like this would be dealt with, where she would seek healing and cleansing uh, from this sort of thing. And yet she doesn't find it in the temple. She finds it in Christ. He is the true temple of God. He is God dwelling with us. And we'll see that uh, repeatedly here in the Gospel of Luke, uh, that Jesus is the true temple Uh, Then in chapter 8, verses 49 uh, through 56, uh, we see another episode of uh, Jesus demonstrating his authority as someone comes. uh, Their daughter, he had been on their way to, to their house to heal their daughter, but he was delayed by this woman, and now they come and tell him the girl is dead. Jesus goes anyway, uh, and he raises her from the dead. In verse 54, he put them outside, took her by the hand, and called, saying, Little girl, arise. Then her spirit returned, and she arose immediately, and he commanded that she be given something to eat. Uh, So Jesus is not only uh, the Messiah, the King of Israel. He is not only the true temple, but he is, in fact, the author of life. Uh, And this is an allusion back to Isaiah chapter 65, where the prophet, again, writing about the servant of the Lord, said, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old. But the sinner being 100 years old, she'll be accursed. So uh, the servant of the Lord creating a new heavens and a new earth uh, that, that death will no longer have dominion uh, in that situation. And Christ is showing that he has dominion over death itself. Then in chapter 9, verses 10 through 17 Uh, We have the feeding of the 5,000. Again, this is the only miracle that takes place in all four of the Gospels. Uh, And this demonstrates Jesus as the provider, uh, that he is God himself, just as God had provided manna for the children of Israel in the wilderness. Uh, Jesus provides for the people here in the wilderness and provides so abundantly that they have 12 baskets of leftover fragments when they're finished eating. Then, uh, Luke presents to us the, the transfiguration uh, here in chapter 9, uh, beginning of verse 28, going through 36. Uh, and Luke is presenting to us here that, that Jesus is greater than both Moses and Elijah because it says that in verse 29, as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now if you'll remember when Moses went up on the mountain to talk to God and receive the law when he came down he had to veil his face because the glory of the Lord was had reflected off of his face and it was too bright for people to look at. But here uh, Jesus Face The appearance of his face is altered because it's not reflecting the glory of the Lord. He is the glory of the Lord. Uh, and so he is greater than Moses in that respect. He is greater than uh, Elijah as well because the voice from the cloud says that this is my son, my beloved son, hear him. Uh, so he is uh, the greater lawgiver, the greater prophet. Uh, and then in verse 31 Notes here in verse 31, Luke makes this point of saying that when Moses and Elijah were with him, uh, they spoke up to him of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, the other gospel writers don't give us that detail. Uh, So Luke gives us this detail that what they are speaking to him about uh, is his coming death, Uh, that he's headed to Jerusalem uh, to fulfill his purpose, his calling uh, to die a substitutionary death. Interestingly, that word there, sometimes translated decease or departure, uh, is basically the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word for exodus. Uh, And so he is departing from this life, but it's also a hint uh, that in his death he is leading the captives free, as Jesus had already quoted from Isaiah earlier in the gospel. Then Luke begins this large section in the middle of his gospel as Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem. Uh, And verses 51 through 56, uh, we find out that um, it says, Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. And so as he's traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem, he knows his purpose. And his purpose is that he comes so that he might die so that others might live. He had not come uh, to end men's lives. But then Jesus goes on in verses 57 through 62 uh, to make the point that uh, he is headed towards his passion where he will suffer and that if we are to follow him, uh, we should expect the same. Then in chapter 10, um, we have an interesting episode here that actually ties in very well with this past Sunday's sermon. Uh, After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them out two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. And then he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And so he sends out these disciples, a group of 70 of them, uh, sends them out uh, to preach, to heal, uh, to do all these things, to proclaim that the kingdom of God has come. Uh, And G.K. Beale says in his commentary, The 70 disciples in Luke 10 symbolize the 70 nations of the world, a community of disciples that reverses the dispersion of the nations in Genesis 10 and 11. So where we saw the 70 nations in Genesis 10 that were scattered at Babel, here Christ is sending out 70 disciples, making the point that he is gathering in, as he says elsewhere, the lost sheep, both of Israel and sheep of other pastures, And bringing them all into one people uh, in him. So again, Luke is making this uh, point about the inclusion of all the world in the gospel of Christ. In chapter 10 verses 17 and 20, uh, 17 through 20, these 70 disciples returned to Christ. Uh, It says that they returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now this is an allusion here when he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven Uh, back to Isaiah 14 verse 12 uh, where the king of Babylon was attempting to exercise dominion over the whole world and Isaiah uh, says, compares him uh, to Lucifer and says that he will fall, he will not take dominion. Uh, And so Jesus is uh, making that allusion back to there, which also, again, ties into that episode at Babel. Then in uh, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, uh, we get the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, and the point being that uh, your neighbor is not ethnically limited. Uh, It is... All people, uh, in the context of what we have just seen here, again, Luke is making the point, all people are invited into the kingdom, not just the Jews. Then in chapter 11, uh, verses 31 and 32, we see an an instance of... um, Christ speaking to the crowd and rebuking them and he tells them that the queen of the south will rise up in judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it for they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. And so he brings in two different Uh, Gentiles, the queen of the south and the men of Nineveh uh, and says they repented and the Jews have not. And so Luke again is making this point uh, of Gentiles who have repented uh, at at the preaching of the good news. Uh, Then in chapter uh, 13 uh, we see a couple of parables uh, that make a a point that um, Jesus is trying to get across to his disciples that all of this preaching about the kingdom and that he is fulfilling uh, these prophecies of the Old Testament as they look forward to the Messiah, that he is fulfilling those things, but not in the way that they had expected. And so he gives us a couple of parables, the parable of the mustard seed and of the leaven in verses 18 through 20. Then he said, What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and put in his garden, and it grew and became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till it was all leavened. And so he's making the point that uh, the kingdom of God grows slowly and not all at once. Uh, it's not going to come uh, suddenly as they had expected uh, that the Messiah would just come and conquer their enemies and lead them to political victory, but that the kingdom is a small thing that will grow uh, gradually and almost unseen. Uh, in chapter 19, verse 11, um, as he spoke to them a parable, it says, Now they, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable, because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. And so that's his point, is that the, the kingdom of God is not coming all at once uh, as him coming as a conquering hero who would conquer Rome and lead them to political victory. But the kingdom is spiritual and it is different than what they had expected. Uh, in chapter 13, verses 28 and 30, we again see uh, Gentiles included uh, in the kingdom uh, where Christ tells them there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see, speaking to the Jews, when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first and there are first who will be last. And so he says people will come from all over to sit down in the kingdom with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not limited simply to the ethnic Jews, but all the nations of the world will be included. Then in chapter 14, uh, verses 7 through 11, uh, Jesus tells a a parable of a wedding feast and is making the point that um, the values of his kingdom are different than the values of the world that not only are the Gentiles included, but the outcasts of society, the lowly, the humble, um, are welcome in his kingdom, even though they would not be welcomed into polite society. Then in uh, chapter 14, verses 16 through 24, where he gives us another parable of a supper, uh, again we see that the, the Those who had been invited to come to the wedding don't come and so the servant is sent out and told to bring in uh, the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind Uh, and when there's still room, Uh, The master says to the servant, verse 23, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. And so again, uh, the inclusion of the Gentiles, the inclusion of the outcasts of society, all of them will be part of the kingdom of heaven. Then in uh, chapter 14 through chapter 18, uh, we have more uh, teaching from Christ uh, on this same subject, uh, just different angles and different episodes and teaching as he makes the point that outsiders, outcasts, the humble, and the Gentiles are included in the kingdom. Then when we get to chapter 19, uh, we have this instance of Jesus and Zacchaeus uh, in chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, uh, and Jesus concludes uh, this episode in verse 9. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. The son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So Gentiles, outsiders, the humble, uh, the weak, the lame, but also uh, those that they would have said were traitors. Zacchaeus is a tax collector. He's a chief tax collector. Uh, They are still hated today. Uh, But... uh, Jesus is making the point that even Zacchaeus is included in the kingdom if he will repent. So then uh, Luke then moves to Jesus' ministry in Judea and Jerusalem. uh, And we see in chapter 19, verse 38, uh, the crowds... uh, during the triumphal entry, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Of course, they're quoting there from the Psalms. Uh, but Jesus is the King who comes, and he comes in victory that he has already won uh, back in the temptation when he triumphed over Satan and did not fall as Adam had. Then in uh, chapter 19, verses 33 and uh, 43 through 44, uh, Jesus says, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And so not only are the Gentiles and the outcasts included, but Jesus says Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, the temple will be destroyed. So there's a bit of irony uh, there that the the Jews who thought they were the only ones that were in are going to be cast out and everyone else invited in. Then in chapter 19, verses 45 and 46, uh, Jesus goes into the temple and cleanses the temple. Uh, He went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Uh, this is a quotation uh, from Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. Uh, and the temple there was said to be a house of prayer for the nations. Uh, again, so I, he's making that point, but Jesus is also uh, cleansing this temple because, as we said, Jesus is the true temple. In chapter 20, uh, verses 9 through 16, uh, we have the parable of the wicked uh, vine dressers. Uh, and the kingdom is taken away from them and given to others. And in this particular instance, uh, Jesus, in verse 17, then he looked at them, That they're upset about this. Jesus looked at them and said, What then is this that is written, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? So he's quoting here from Psalm 118, verse 22. He is claiming himself to be the chief cornerstone of a new temple. Uh, and then in verse 18 he says whoever falls on that stone will be broken and on whomever it falls it will grind him to powder. This is an allusion back to Daniel chapter 2 uh, and the stone that was cut without hands that destroyed uh, the wicked nations and empires of this world. Uh, and Jesus is making the point that this nation of Israel has become just like uh, the wicked nations of the world. They have rejected their Messiah and so they will be crushed along with all others who reject him. Chapter 21 is then uh, primarily taken up with uh, Jesus' predictions of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, And then in chapter 22, uh, we see the Passover meal that Jesus celebrates with his disciples um, and again institutes the Lord's Supper. And in verse 37, uh, we see that um, Jesus tells them, Back up to verse 36. Then he said to them, But now he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you, that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. So uh, Jesus is making the point here that uh, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, which is what he's quoting from here, uh, that he must bear the sins of others. He must be numbered with the transgressors. Uh, then in chapter 23, uh, verse 47, uh, we see uh, the crucifixion happening, and as Jesus dies on the cross, uh, that the Roman soldier who is there uh, witnesses this, and it says, So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, certainly. This was a righteous man. And so uh, Luke, again, includes this episode of a Gentile glorifying God uh, when he witnesses the crucifixion of Christ. Uh, And this is a fulfillment of Isaiah 56. Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, which reads... Even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And so even this centurion who witnesses the, the crucifixion and glorifies God uh, will be included in the kingdom. Then in uh, chapter 24, verses 13 through 35, we have Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Uh, this is only found here in the book of Luke. Uh, is mentioned briefly uh, in the Gospel of Mark, but it's expounded upon here by Luke. And as Jesus is on the road with these two men, uh, he teaches them down in chapter 27. It says, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so he's going through Moses, that's the law, the prophets, the rest of the Old Testament, and he is showing them all the things concerning himself. Uh, Luke's point is, is that Jesus is God incarnate, uh, that the kingdom is marked by suffering, the Messiah, Uh, bears the sins of others, he bears the curse for us, and that he rises from the dead. He is risen here in chapter 24. These are all fulfillments of Old Testament prophecies, but in ways that Israel had not necessarily expected the Messiah to fulfill those prophecies. And so it's interesting that Luke uh, kind of ends his gospel uh, with that episode because at the very beginning of his gospel, remember that Luke had said, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us. And so, as Luke has gone through his gospel, he has shown us the things that have been fulfilled among us, so that we might have certainty that they were fulfilled in Christ. Uh, and that, as he says in verse 46, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So this was Luke's whole point, that the life of Christ in an orderly account that he presents does fulfill all the prophecies of the Old Testament concerning the Messiah, the coming of the kingdom, and the inclusion of the nations in the end times kingdom. And so that is the Gospel of Luke. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.